Welcome. I'm your host, Adam Bailey, and I'm a commercial drone operator in the UK. This podcast looks into the UK drone industry, the people, the companies, and what's going on out there. All my guests play a major part in the industry. Welcome to the UK Commercial Drone Podcast. Welcome back to the pod. I have with me today Elliot Cork. Welcome, Elliot. Hello. Would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, my name is Elliot. Um, I run a couple of drone companies. I run Hexcam, which is an operational company based in Norwich, Norfolk, and I run the Aerial Academy as well. So I'm very excited about this pod today. Reason being, Elliot, so a lot of us in the drone industry in the UK, is the guru. For myself, he trained me to fly my first drone and got me through the early stages of becoming a commercial operator and helped me out at the beginning in many, many ways, which I can't thank him enough for. And I know there are quite a number of people in the industry who are in a similar boat. So thanks from me and thanks from all those people. Would you like to tell us how you got into this industry? It was the back end of 2011. I was having a bit of a change of career and one of my friends came around November 2011 for dinner. And after dinner, he got his iPad out and just said, have you seen these? It was a BBC report about Cyberhawk doing a bridge inspection up in Scotland. And at that time, it was so new that it featured on the news. So I looked into it. And at that time, I had a look around East Anglia. And there was one other company operating over Great Yarmouth or somewhere. And then there was nobody else really until you got across to Nottingham. So I thought I'd give it a go. And you've not looked back since? Not really, no. So tell us about your early drones and what you were doing at the beginning and what you were flying. Well, my background is in marine biology, so I've got an environmental background. So I felt immediately looking around Norfolk, I could see applications in conservation and the environment and construction and things like that. So I guess I quite early on went into the more technical side. Equipment at that time was a lot more basic than it is now. So the original equipment I got came from a company in Ireland, a chap called Tomash, who built the two drones that I started off with. So I started off with a 550 class hexacopter and then quite rapidly moved on to about an 800 class octocopter, which was aluminium box section frame, Wukong flight controller. You know, I've still got a lot of the components and use them in other machines. So sadly, both, both of the original machines are now um, well past their commercial use. If you look onto Hexcam social media, I'm sure you can see a photo of that original. If, if you go onto the Hexcam YouTube and go strolling right back through the videos, you can see my first ever video with the, the GoPro gaffer taped to the um, F550 and how amazing we thought that was at the time. And you can see how far along things have come in the five, six years. I mean, that's the big thing when you look at the industry. It, it is still very young, but mm. it's moving forward at such a rate, isn't it? Yes, yeah, it's, it's hard to keep up. Um, the rate of development is just exponential at the moment. Obviously, DJI are pushing the limits of the technology probably more than anybody else in some ways, just because they've got so much money to throw at it. But, you know, we, when we look at stuff now, we've got a Mavic set beside us now. You look at the tech that's in there compared to what we had just five years ago, and then you've got something that folds up into your, into your pocket, basically, with 4K capability and fully stabilised gimbal. It's just incredible. So on an operation basis, what are you mainly doing these days? Um, most of our work on the operations side is survey type work and ongoing construction monitoring, similar to yourself, I suppose. Um, Stealing my work. A little bit of creative stuff in there. Yeah, that's the bulk of it. Bit of thermal imaging. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> The reason Elliot's laughing there is Elliot and myself set up a joint venture to do some thermal imaging and it never really took off. We were too early. We were ahead of our time. We, we were very much ahead of our time. And there's been a few little projects like that that Elliot and I've worked on. I ended up selling him my half of the thermal camera yeah. and now he's starting to use it. Yeah, it's, well, you uh... can always buy it back. <laughs> 
I think I'll stick with the XT on the in, Inspire now. Yeah. You know, that, that has limitations. We can't, we can't use the XT for what we want to do. Yeah. Is it not right? There's a radiometric. It's full radiometric, but only does full radiometric. Stills, not full radiometric video. Okay. So the piece of kit that we bought from, what was the company? It's Optris. Optris. So that was fully radiometric video. video. And you can extract fully radiometric stills from it as well. It ran off a little tiny XP computer. Yeah, that, so that's the limitation at the moment, but we're looking at possibly upgrading that. So, but yeah, that's a slight tangent, but yeah. So so what are you doing with the thermal stuff? Solar PV surveys, starting into that. A couple of other agricultural-based survey things, irrigation leaks and things. Aerial Academy is your newest and, and brightest venture. Do you want to tell us about the Aerial Academy? Yeah, so the Aerial Academy formed out of the training side. You know, I started training under under the Hexcam brand. That started to take over most of my time. And we became, uh, with the Civil Aviation Authority, a restricted national qualified entity, which meant we could offer the flight assessments but not the theory element. So we could provide flight assessments for people who already had, for example, a private pilot's license exempted them from the theory. But the Civil Aviation Authority don't allow you to be both an operator and a training entity. So we set up the Aero Academy as a separate entity. How do the resource group do They have separate, I think you can be a separate part of the same business, but it was just easier just to set up a separate business and do it that way. And so we became a restricted NQE two and a half years ago. And then in October 2016, we've got our full NQE, which now means we can now run the full process of the theory and the practical element, which means we can take people all the way through to their full permissions, which is great because it means we can do it all in-house now, which is brilliant. So caveat here, there are other NQEs available no, there are, um, and, until Aaron Academy <laughs> decided to sponsor this pod. Uh, oh, really? <laughs> okay. But when we entered the market, there was only one NQE. And there was. Two, two coming online when I started. Originally, there was Euro USC who ran the BNAC-S course, which you know a lot of us went through in the early days. And then Resource Group came online. And now there are about 20, some of whom are restricted, some of whom are really using it for in-house training. And the number of us who are obviously offering it out for general courses. Yeah. So I, I on my last count, there were twenty four NQEs and talk of another six coming. Yeah, they'll, they'll, they'll come online. It's it's a natural progression in the market that more and more training providers will come along online. I think. Do you see that as too many, or do you see that there'll be some that much like operators? You know, we've seen a huge influx into the market, but a huge influx out the back as well. I mean, what we've seen happening in the market over the last few years definitely is a movement of operators into niche markets. So when we when I started, you know, we were jack of all trades. There were there were only a hundred or so commercial operators at that point, and you had to be able to do anything that people called you in to do. And I think what we're what we're seeing in the in the operational side is more and more people moving to niches. So whether it's surveying or agriculture or creative or whatever. And I think you may end up with a similar thing in the NQEs. I think you'll start to see NQEs beginning to specialise in particular areas that they have strengths in. And it's interesting to see, obviously, quite sad in some ways, seeing Euro USC go under earlier this year. Yeah, Euro USC Italia is still running. But. Yeah, but obviously as a full NQE in the UK, it's it's gone now. I don't know what that's symptomatic of, just uh, just maybe not dealing with the change in the marketplace with the, yeah. with the new NQEs coming in. I mean, my personal opinion on Euro USC is that, you know, they were the trailblazers. Mm. They, they were the people at the forefront, but they didn't move with the market. No, they and, didn't. And they didn't really look at their custom base as something to be proud of and mm. keep them happy. And so, you know, other people took market share. Exactly. You know, resource group initially, 
unless you took quite a few away and obviously with more and more entries coming in there's always going to be a, a bit of a dilution back in those early days as well we had to be flight assessed for every different craft we yeah. had didn't we that's, well, that's uh, how so. i did i'm going to resource group because i had to be flight assessed for the uh the tarot um yeah. and, for, and for the versa drone so we had to be flight assessed for every every aircraft so yep. think yourself lucky or you knew people that you only have to be flight assessed in one category what's your pfco number 117 Mine's three three three, but there were only uh there was about 123, 130 PFAW holders, PFA permissions for aerial work as it was back then when I entered the market, even with three three three. So. Yeah, well there's there's about thirty left before me and I, I will eliminate you all. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm joking. Um uh yeah, there's uh, at last count, although I'm one one seven, there's only thirty of the one of the numbers before that left. And I think we had an inquiry back about an application that we've got in at the moment, and I think it's something like four thousand three hundred yeah. uh, is is the number of that one. But there are was it two thousand three hundred active PFCO holders. What do you think those numbers are indicative of? Is there a lot of consolidation in the market? Is there a lot of people who are entering the market without any real direct I, approach, without any idea of what they're going to do? I or? think you've got a few things going on. One is consolidation, definitely in the early numbers. If you look at the early PFCOs, you've got people consolidating into larger businesses and maintaining one of the permissions, but letting others lapse. And those numbers aren't reissued. And then you've got people dropping out, definite dropout in the market that we're seeing. And that may be because people didn't have a... I think a lot of the time is people get really excited about the drones, but don't have a clear business plan. And we're, we're very much... When people call us now and say, I want to be a drone operator, my first response is generally, have you got a business plan? What's your business plan? Some people are bringing it in as another part of an existing business, or they've got very clear ideas, and they tend to be the people that do well. People who come in and go, I want to work for estate agents. That's, it's just not going to happen. So this is, this is where I mention one of Elliot's uh, competitors, because I, I have been an instructor for one another NQE, UAV Air. I was always saying to the students that they need to have a clear idea about what they're doing with the drones. The drone is the last thing to think about, exactly. I think. You have to specialise before you generalise in this industry now. Where it used to be, you generalised and you picked up everything you could. Now, you've got to have a clear sense of what you're doing. The drone is a tool to carry something, most of the time it's a camera, yep. but you've got to have an end user for that camera. Exactly. I mean, I wrote a blog on that beginning of 2015, I think, is that I, um, we had the kind of year of the drone where, you know, 2014, 2015, you had the phantoms, you know, the decent phantoms coming out. Beginning of 2015, you had the Inspire, everyone got really excited about that. But it's the equivalent of a photographer getting super excited about a tripod. Um, at the end of the day, you start with a clear idea of what your clients need. Then you decide what camera you need to fulfill that need, and then you work back to the drone. If you start with the drone, then you'll probably buy the wrong one. I think me and you have had this conversation many yeah. times with yeah. people at trade fairs and things like that, haven't we? Yeah. Start with your end product, get a clear idea of your end product, and then work backwards. So I need to go back to the story of how I met Elliot in the first place. When I don't I came. remember. <laughs> <laughs> so this is back in uh, 2013. Yeah, so you were. Start of 2013. So you were one of our first trainees, weren't you? Yeah, you wrote the course for me, didn't That's, you? Yeah, it was you and, and Bill Bolton. Bill Bolton. And then not long after you, there were people like Chris Wildblood, Richard Elliot. So hello, guys. You're all getting a mention here. <laughs> you, get a, you'll get, you'll get a name shout. There's probably a few I'll miss out, but you know, there's a few hundred I'll miss out, actually. You know, but. So basically, I had the idea for Kingfisher in March 2013. I don't know how I came across drones. I think I saw something on TV when, and it kind of clicked with um, a problem I had inspecting roofs for my day job. Yeah. 
basically I went online, there was no information around and I was looking at some dodgy drone company in Canada somewhere, but I didn't find anything in the UK. I searched for competitors to see if there was many people out there and I came across Hexcam's website mm-hmm. and came across Elliot's blog on that website and lo and behold, there's regulations. I didn't know this. Mm-hmm. And then there was a section on his website, we sell drones in connection with Versa drones as they were then. Goodness me. So I gave Elliot calls. I said, do you mind having a chat? And as many people in the industry know, Elliot's always open to talking to people. He might roll his eyes at me at the moment, but (laughs) he's always been very, very helpful with advice. I said, can I come and have a look at these things in action to see if they can actually do what I want? He said, that's fine. Come up on Saturday. Um, If you can get here for eight o'clock in the morning, I've got half an hour at that time in the morning. So I get up at five o'clock in the morning, drive all the way from South London to Norwich to Elliot's house, knock on his front door. His boys a lot smaller than they are now. He took me up to the field and flew this thing around. So what did I fly? It was the Versa. Yeah. yeah, it was that crazy thing that I... Carbon thing. Yeah. yeah. Can anyone find any pictures of that Versa? I've got pictures on the website. It's worth having a look at this craft because another guy who's probably quite ahead of his time... He was too Thomas. far. Uh, Thomas, uh, I'm, I'm not sure. I haven't been in touch with him for a while. I need to get back in touch. But he was very early in drone supply, bringing uh, supplying the early DJI kit, but also supplying custom airframes. But he made one himself called the Versa drone or Versa X6. And there's still a picture of it on the West Versadrome Facebook, I think. And it flew very nicely. The, the biggest problem with it, I think, is that it was a completely moulded body. So if you crashed it, it's very hard to repair. And the arms actually pulled The arms pulled, pulled out. Yeah. And they plugged in and stuff. And I, I learned to fly on this thing with Elliot. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, crazy. And it, Elliot supplied my tarot that I, I first set the company up. And I still have that tarot and it still gets deployed every now and then for specific yeah, jobs. It had, a, it had a little bit of a repair job along the way. <laughs> I have never had a crash. So Elliot's referring to um, a time that I did have an accident with a drone on a job. It does happen to the best of us. Yep. But Elliot quickly fixed it with just a bit of carbon fibre. That's a good thing about the tarot airframes is, is they're just 25mm carbon tube, so they're so easy to repair. And that's why we moved over to that style of airframe, just because it was easy. I've still got my tarot T810, which is still operational as well. Yeah, I mean, I've gone backwards with the gimbal on that. I've now got a servo gimbal on it. Yeah, for stills. It's a stills-only yeah. machine there. I mean, there's a few people doing survey stuff for stills. Mr. Sugden, I believe, does. Uh, Jake Sugden, yeah, yeah he, he's got... He's got 80,000 uh, 80, or something on. Yeah. Oh, AV200, I can't remember what it's called, but... AV210. AV210, something like that, yeah. yeah. Anyway, one, one of those uh, survey gimbals. Survey gimbals are great for stills and awful for video. But the moral of that crash story is that I was focusing in my head more on the job in the afternoon than the job at hand. <laughs> so always focus on what you're doing at hand. Don't be distracted keep aware of what's going on around you. I've also had a couple of, should we call them uncontrolled vertical descents, as it says in our manual, (laughs) in my time. Um, Fortunately, both in empty fields. does happen occasionally, I'm afraid. You've had some interesting jobs in the past. Do you want to tell us about one or two of them? Maybe the one from the Gambia? Gambia, It wasn't Gambia, it was the Congo, yeah? The Congo. Yeah, so the Congo. So that was, it popped up on my Facebook feed uh, the other day. So it was just about four years ago this week. I got contracted by a company from the Congo to go over and film a cycle race. It was the first ever Tour de Congo. Have there been any subsequent and tours? There has been one, I think, but it's, it's got a bit unsettled over there, unfortunately, now. And uh, at first I thought it was a prank call, and then it became clear it wasn't, and the guy actually came and met me. And so 
yeah, June, July 2013, I ended up going to the Congo. Spent about 10 days over there. The idea was to film this this cycle race. We didn't film a massive amount of it in the end for various reasons. But if you have a look at the, again, the Hexcam YouTube, you'll find a little snip out of that. And again, it's one of those situations where you look back and you wish you had something like the Inspire on the Mavic because we could have done so much more dynamic work. But because of the limitations on the kit, even then, we couldn't get the kind of dynamism we wanted. And it did turn out in the end when we got over there that the company that we were working for was employed by the government to film this. And it was much more about filming the infrastructure that the government had put in place rather than the actual cycle race itself but it was a really i mean it's a beautiful country and it was a it was a great couple of weeks uh, when i spoke to the british embassy they said make sure you're paid in advance and so i said i want to be paid in advance and the money dropped into my account a few days before so i had to go and it was yeah it's brilliant did you have any problems getting your batteries out there or anything like no that i mean at the machine i was using which was one of the we took the versa over there actually and the batteries we were using i think it flew on two two six cells possibly in two four cells but they, they came in about about 80 or 90 watt hour each so phil and i ended up carrying 10 each of these these batteries through security security didn't have a problem they bomb swapped them in heathrow brussels didn't care and so we carried 20 lipos on the plane in our hand luggage that's going to surprise some people you wouldn't get away with 20 now i don't think no. not, not of that size anyway you might get away with 20 mavic batteries or something um you wouldn't need 20 <laughs> the flight i mean bearing in mind you know we got at that time we were getting maybe eight nine minute flight times so we needed a lot more batteries than we do now so any other really interesting jobs that you've had over the years? We've flown all sorts. I've flown underground in at Sizewell Nuclear Power Station. I've flown... Um, Did you get the drone back out of there or is the drone <laughs> yeah, still in there? It glows nicely. No, uh, yeah, no, it's good. We, I've flown at the end of South Pier. I've, I've flown at Millbrook Proving Ground chasing electric superbikes. But most of my work generally is quite calm and sensible work. It's, and there's nothing super complicated in what we do, really. Yeah, you've seen a lot of people who are coming through with different business cases and that you know what, what's the most interesting use case you've seen recently and what i'm loving at the moment is the onward development of photogrammetry and the 3d modeling and the speed at which we can now turn around the 3d models that's great 360 video i think is quite interesting although i think people will get bored of it quite quickly just to note here i first flew a 360 rig back in 2014 yeah, yeah uh... i've seen that video it's stuff we've done with Ofcom, which I think I can talk about, where we've been not been flying cameras, but we've been flying frequency detection kit to detect different types of frequencies for TV broadcasts and things like that, and mobile phones, just just to make sure that it's all legal and things. So that was quite interesting because it was it's very unusual to fly drones without cameras on them. If we're looking at say five to ten years, what we're going to be looking at in terms of shape, numbers, what usages we're going to be seeing? I think we're going to be seeing increased automation, probably increased autonomy as well taking us out of the loop and to some degree drones making more of their own decisions as time goes by to be able to carry out missions autonomously rather than just automatically. I think we're going to see big increases in endurance over the next five, ten years, which means that it's going to start to push the legislation. The biggest problem at the moment is that the capability of the drones is beginning to exceed what we're allowed to do with the legislation. So we need to see people pushing, I mean people are already pushing extended visual line of sight and beginning to see developments in beyond visual line of sight. So do you see the ESA proposals, if they come in, they'll open up the industry a bit more to do these things? Yeah, I think it's good because it looks like with the right safety cases, beyond visual line of sight could work. If we manage to get beyond visual line of sight, then that extends us out to the potential of much longer endurance operations. 
as with other episodes of the pod, we're talking about a change in regulations along with a change in technology, because obviously we're still looking at battery technology that needs to enable those. Well, we've got battery technology. We're also looking at things like hydrogen fuel cell technology now. So there's a possibility of three or four hour multi-rotor flight. I mean, fixed wings can already get well over an hour whenever our contact is looking at fixed wings, which will fly for two or three hours. So we can match, obviously we can't match generally the speed of a, of a manned aircraft, but we can begin to match the endurance of a manned aircraft. And therefore the kind of missions we can fly become much bigger, much bigger scale. So we're looking at those infrastructure type projects, you know, your rail, your pipelines, yeah, exactly. your electricity yeah. lines. Cables, also much bigger scale agriculture. It's just become a theme of conversations I'm having recently when people are talking about the future of the industry. We, you know, there's a lot of money to be made, but you've got to understand that industry and have that capability before it can be realised. I think one of the big problems in the industry at the moment is people who go, yeah, I can do that, you know, because they've bought their whatever, they've got their drone, and they know their drone can acquire the imagery. But a lot of the time they can't do the post-processing, they can't provide the deliverables to the client. So as a result, clients don't get what they need and then they think oh we've tried drones and they don't work not because they don't work but because the operator who was trying to do it didn't have the capability to provide the end product for the client and it's frustrating because what i'd far rather see is rather than people going yeah i can do that is actually people collaborating with you know maybe less experienced operators getting in touch with people who they know can do it and working with them one way or another to provide a good deliverable because if everybody's providing good deliverables to clients that means that Others will see the possibilities and that will increase the client base for the industry. Uh, all the time people are trying to blag it, it, it pushes clients away. What's the biggest threat to the industry, do you see? There's potential for clients to be turned away. I think with time that will iron itself out and they'll see other companies doing it well and they'll figure out what was done wrong in the first place. But it just, it just feels like it sets us back months or years in undoing poor work, you know. Other threats, obviously, the readily available kit means, yes, there are more people in the industry, so there is going to be increased competition. The readily available kit means that people are coming in who aren't aware of the legislation, they can buy the kit anywhere, and they're operating illegally. And if something goes wrong, that could be a threat. The media have this kind of weird love-hate relationship with drones. They want to use them all over their programs. They want to use them all over the news. And yet the news will be screaming if a, if a drone does something wrong. So We'll be screaming even if it does it right yeah, half the time. Yeah. It's, it's very odd in that you get people who can really see the potential in technology. And yet at the same time, there's this kind of anti-drone kind of undercurrent, which is a shame because, you know, for every one silly incident where somebody decides that it's a great idea to use their drone to film aircraft taking off from a runway, you know, and gets far too close to planes. You know, there's probably hundreds of hours of people doing really good work, which doesn't get any publicity. So looking at the industry, are there any operators out there that people should go and have a look at if they want inspiration, you know, any ones to watch out there? I mean, what I try and do every year or so is I look at a few companies that I think are above where, where we are, basically, in, in what they're doing and the, the, the deliverables. I don't know. So in terms of the creative side, I you know, I still think people like Uppercut and Ben over at Rogue State Media. We all love Ben. Can yeah, I yeah everyone loves Ben. Chris at Skyhook and a few others. Um, the Heli Girls, um, Angus at Flying Pictures. Flying Pictures now. That lot. 
you know, they're doing some great work in the higher end side of things, higher end TV and film work. Yeah, I mean, Rover. Angus today, is it today or yesterday, was doing yeah, a Henley Regatta. You know, Matt and the guys up there have been working a couple of films recently. I'm not sure what we're going to say. Transformers 5. Yeah. yeah, no, he's got it all over social okay, media. Okay, so that's so. fine then. So, yeah, it's great to see guys who and girls who've been around for a while doing brilliant work um, at the higher end stuff, which I don't even go near. I don't fly these expensive cameras. I, I you know. It's harder to say with the service side because people keep things much closer to their chest on that side of the industry. Hint, hint. <laughs> uh, I'm trying to get into, say, Kingfisher there. But it's, we'll get there. <laughs> yeah, Kingfisher on the survey. We've got, well, us, we're getting more involved with the survey. It's still, you know, Cyberhawk is still top of their game. For those of you who, who are looking to get in the industry, but even those of you who are in the industry, go and have a look at what these guys are doing because it, it's seeing what other people are doing that, yeah. that gets you increasing your outputs, challenging yourself to better these people. Yeah, I mean, if you want to see some beautiful stills work, have a look at Richard Elliott, Aero Photography, and also um, Shetland Flyer, Rory. You know, there's newer people coming in as well. We're getting people, trainees who are coming through who are... Sky Optics Limited. Sky Optics, because. that's the one. We're getting people coming through now who are already very accomplished ground photographers or ground videographers who are bringing that into their business and doing a really good job. It's great to see that and, and to, to have that example. What are you flying at the moment when you do fly? Inspire 1 Pro, Phantom 3 Pro. So we haven't upgraded yet from those. I've, I've, I have had a Mavic in my grubby mitts over the last few weeks. For, I took one to Bulgaria and we took one up to, uh, oh no, we used Richards in Scotland. I do like it. I might, ha might have to try and justify buying one at some point. I've just bought one myself. Yeah, so. I, I do love the the Phantom 4 Pro as well, the quality of that camera for, you know, for the top of the Phantom range now. I, I just can't help myself sometimes. You know, I've just got to buy the newest, greatest kit. <laughs> yeah, well, I think recently particularly a few years ago when we started buying kit you really took a chance and i think now that's it's becoming easier to buy a kit early and there's always teething issues because i think no matter how many tests you run you know dji runs as they're releasing kit you can't replicate every scenario that's going to happen everywhere so there's always going to be firmware issues and hardware issues but i think they're getting better at dealing with that now than they were maybe back with the original phantoms and things i mean do you see one of the biggest issues is that dji are so big that we're not really getting any competitors do, do, nobody that i can see can compete with dji at the moment at the cost level that DJI works at, so that kind of sub £10,000, uh, so the £1,000 for the Mavics and the Phantoms and the kind of three four for the Inspire 1s and the five six for the Inspire 2s. At that pricing point, unfortunately, much as I'd like there to be, there isn't really anyone who could... Compete. Unique had a stab at it, didn't they? Uh, yeah, and unfortunately, I think, um, particularly with the h920 they didn't deal with the early issues on that fast enough and people who had bought the early models unfortunately got disenchanted and moved away it's a shame because they they had a real chance to compete i think but unfortunately dji could just move on so fast now and then we saw people like gopro trying to enter the market which <laughs> with they, drones dropping out the sky they should have stayed well away from <laughs> and again they released the karma on the day the karma's released dji leak the mavic and then the, the cameras start falling out of the sky. The Mavic was an altogether better platform anyway. Yeah, absolutely. I've flown both. I have flown a Karma. I have flown the Mavic. And, and unfortunately, I wouldn't buy a Karma. Um, and there was 3DR as well. You know, they really tried. 3DR. Uh, they tried with the Solo. It doesn't fly too badly. I flew one the other day, actually. It flies all right. But it, it just feels so 
it now feels, you know, any almost any machine you fly after you've flown a DJI feels like two or three year old technology. Because I remember when you first had a 3DR on your workstation, you said the only way you were going to get it to fly was throw it out the window. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just couldn't get the thing uh, activated. And it was that machine I was flying the other day, actually. Yeah, so, I mean, it is a shame there's no competitor, isn't there? But, you know, the, the, technology, the I, stuff DJI's producing is I, just I, I so just can't, advanced. The things I can't even see where that competition is going to come from. Yeah, because I thought with Intel's buying into uh, Unique, Unique. What about Pixel? Could they again? If you're wanting to build a custom machine, Pixel's great. It does require a bit more faffing around to get it going, but it, get, it could give you much better capability in terms of backend programming and more interesting things. I mean, I mean, I mean, the thing with the with the DJI kit is nothing is perfect, and the DJI is still not perfect, but it just does everything consistently better than everybody else so although it's not perfect it's still the best fit for most people i used to build the odd drone here and there i cannot put together a drone now with the same quality of kit that dji can chuck out in their standard machines it means that the cost of entry is much lower as well because yeah. it, it did cost a lot of money when we entered the market yeah, it did. didn't it yeah yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, uh, for, for something equivalent of an Inspire, in terms of quality, you were looking at least four times, I guess, the price, three or four times the price of what uh, an Inspire one is now. So I mean, you're probably looking eight to 10,000 for something that was the same quality as the Inspire one with the X5 on it. Problem was we were trying to carry standard DSLRs, so you were carrying extra weight you didn't need to carry, you were carrying, you know, the hand grips you, you just don't need and the screens and things. Now that they've streamlined, I mean, I've just looked at the X5S for the first time, Adam's one, uh, and it's so streamlined compared to the X5. It's so light uh, yeah. because a lot of the process has, has been moved on board the actual drone itself. Yeah, having those specific cameras, having specific hardware just makes it so much easier. Have you got three bits of advice that you'd give to anyone looking to get into the industry now? What three bits of advice would you give them before they get on the pathway of getting into the market okay before you buy your i don't know if it's free bits of advice but here you go before you buy your drone research your market and write a business plan and work backwards so what output are you going to give to your client backwards to the camera quality you need backwards to the drone okay do it in that order write a business plan learn your kit inside out learn to fly too many people come for, to us for flight assessment having not flown enough fly as much as you can and, and fly in the non-GPS modes. Uh, so, so learn your machine and learn the, those kind of different modes that you wouldn't normally use on operations just in case. Practice your art. Practice the shots. Don't, don't try and blag something. If you don't know how to do something, you know, get in touch with somebody who's more experienced and work alongside them, I would say, so that you can give a good product to your client. And then down the line, you, know, you will learn and the client will get a good result. So they'll probably come back to you rather than blagging it and losing that client for everybody. And any one piece of advice for us old hands in the industry? Keep an eye over your shoulder because there's a lot more coming through. Don't, don't rest on your laurels. Thanks for that, Elliot. And no thanks problem. for joining us on the pod. Hoping that Elliot will be a guest again in the future. <laughs> and we might even get Ben Kenobi on. Yeah, you yeah. never know if we can tie him down to the UK. Well, thanks again, Elliot. Okay, no problem. Thanks again for listening to the UK Commercial Drone Podcast. Subscribe and please leave a review. For more details, you can also find us on Twitter and Facebook.